Well, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. You know, these words are very timely for us this morning. And uh, it's my prayer. The Lord would use them to accomplish His purpose. In fact, uh, I want to pray to that end. So, let's pray. Lord, I would pray that You would... um, Take these words of mine and, Lord, I pray that You would use them and convict us all of sin righteousness and the the judgment to come. That You would use them, God, and speak through them to our hearts. They've been challenging for me this week. I pray, pray that they would be challenging for all of us. Lord, that You would help us and stir us and, um, God, lead us to, to take, put off these behaviors and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we do pray these things in Your name. Amen. Well, Colossians 3, <clears throat> well, verses 8 through 11. Like last week, these verses deal with the issue of uh, our sanctification. That is how we ought to live as believers in Christ. Let me read verses 8 through 11. Paul writes, But now you also put them all aside... Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. My message this morning is entitled, Put Off Your Sin. I get that from the first half of verse 8, where Paul says, But now you also put them all aside. Right, the idea here is um, a bit like undressing after a hard day of work on the farm. Right, you fed your cows and you fed your pigs. You scooped out their manure and you spent the afternoon riding on a tractor with the dust you know, swirling all around in the dusty fields. And now you finally come home. Your garments are, are filled with sweat and grime and smell and pig. And you come into your house. The first thing you do is you, you take you off your clothes. You, you put them aside. You put them on the washer to be washed. As for yourself, you climb into the shower and dress for dinner. Shower for dinner. Freshen up. That's what Paul is saying. He says there are certain sins that are like stains on your clothes and you need to remove them as you would remove dirty clothes. You need to remove these clothes from your body. You need to set them aside. You need to shower in the blood of Christ. That's what he's telling us this morning. Perhaps a picture might help. I have some beloved shorts of mine that I wear from time to time. And uh, these, these shorts have been used just a little bit. <laughs> Maybe you can tell that. They are covered with uh, paint stains and, and ripped and let loose. And um, it's got some holes in them. These are the kind of shorts that Paul is telling us to put off and to remove from us. And he's telling us then to put on some shorts like these. Like these are shorts that I wear. These are my, my dress-up shorts whenever I need to, to go to a place that's more nice and uh, is in the, 
the summertime, and these are, my, these are my nice shorts. And that's what Paul is telling us to do. He's telling us to take off these clothes, and he's telling us to put on these types of clothes. In fact, this um, phraseology he uses here is he uses it again. And look at verse 9. He says, Do not lie to one another, since here it is. You've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Right? You've laid aside the old self. You've put on the new self. You've laid aside the, the filthy, soiled shorts and you've put on the new, clean shorts. So don't go out working in the garden again where you're going to get dirty. Don't go painting in your house. Your shorts will be stained by the paint. Don't go shoveling manure anymore. Right? But put on the new self. And hopefully this picture will help you to see what God is, is calling us to do. He's calling us to lay aside the sinful practices and to put on the, the righteous practices. In fact, next week as we get to verse 12, we're going to see these righteous practices we need to put on. So then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Here he is again. Put off these things and put on these things. Well, my outline is quite simple. My first point is like last week. Six sins to put off. Six sins to put off. We read in verse 8, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Here are six sins that the Lord has given us to depart from. Last week there were five sins. If you look back there in verse 5, there was immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. They were all sins of selfishness. They were all sins of, of desire. They were all sins of... a motivated by a passion in your heart to have something that's going to give you pleasure, whether that's sexual pleasure, whether that's materialism. Either way, it's just a, a, a self-centeredness, right? Self-centered sins. This morning, though, these aren't so much self-centered sins as they are social sins. Right? These sins deal with your heart towards other people. These sins deal with what you say to other people. These are, are the sins that, that get at your intention and and um, cause you to speak ill or have ill will towards other people. And like last week, I want to just dig into some of these in a summary fashion. Anger. Anger is a, a sin of an internal hostility towards others. It's like um, the burning of a heart towards another person. It's, it's like smoldering coals upon a fire. That's, that's just a settled animosity and heat and anger that you have at somebody else. Wrath is much the same. In fact, it's difficult to distinguish this word from the first. <coughs> but if there's any different, this, this wrath describes maybe the outworking of the anger. Um, if the anger is the uh, burning coals, then the wrath is the flame, which actually goes out and, and hurts and gives forth its light and gives forth its heat. It's an outward expression of anger towards another person. I had an illustration of this last night. My wife and I, has some friends of ours who had tickets to the Rockford Symphony Orchestra. And so we went to the symphony last night. I think it was their season premiere. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, if you know anything about me, you know that I'm music stupid. 
and, and I don't know much, but I can kind of hear and see. And so throughout the performance, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair here and my wife is sitting here and I'm kind of leaning over and, and whispering to her in her ear, being very careful so as to be very, um, very quiet because it's a real quiet setting and everyone's trying to listen to the orchestra coming. And uh, I, I'm asking her questions about, does the violinist, do they always you know, sway like that? And what does this mean? And how is that? And I'm asking these questions. And all of a sudden we hear in this quiet auditorium. So imagine this. We're you know, listening to symphony. Let's listen to symphony. And this woman behind us says, what does she say? Here it is. Do you know how rude those two people are? They keep putting their heads together and I can't see. Needless to say, for the rest of the performance, no other leaning over and whispering to my wife. I sat still and straightforward, disappointed that I couldn't have my questions answered about the symphony to enjoy it together. But you think about the process of this lady. What's stirring up within her? Stirring up within her is this, this anger. right? And, and then ultimately, I came out in the wrath to, to speak for many people around. About what she said. She said it pretty loud. <laughs> it was loud. He put a damper on us. And, and, and as soon as we had intermission, first thing we did, we turned over and apologized to her and just said, Boy, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry for blocking your view. I'm sorry. I had to say sorry about five times before she said, I accept your apology. Just there was an anger and a wrath in here that it just wouldn't be quelled, even with my saying of I'm sorry. Until finally she did. That's anger and that's wrath that, that kind of stirs within you and then ultimately it boom point comes out and oftentimes even in, in words. Malice is our next phrase there. The third one, this is a heart of hatred towards another person. Describes a, an intent in the heart to, to harm someone else. Describes a cruel intent towards others. That's what malice is. Slander. The Greek word here is blasphemion. Right? What word, English word do we get from that? Blasphemy. Right? It describes evil speech, particularly with reference to speaking against God, but it can be used in speaking against other people. And when it's directed towards other people, the idea is here that you're presenting them in an unfavorable light. You're trying to misrepresent them. You're trying to slander them. Abusive speech. In other words, in other versions, it's translated filthy language, filthy communication, obscene talk. It's referring to speech that's sour and not edifying. Maybe spe- it's speech that's harmful to each other, to other people. It's, it's speech that, you know, it's just talking about moral filth, things that just shouldn't be talked about. It's abusive speech. Lying. The Greek word here is pseudo, from which we get the word pseudo, which means fake. It's the opposite of truth, right? It simply means falsehood or error. It describes words that just aren't true. It's what falsehood is. It's what lying is. Now, I find it curious as I looked about these uh, six sins and I thought about them a bit. Paul's list here is almost exactly identical to the list that Solomon gives in Proverbs chapter 6 where he describes, he says, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among the brothers. Right? Anger and wrath we see in the shedding of innocent blood. Just a hatred that comes out and sheds innocent blood. We see the malice in a heart that devises wicked things to do. 
We see slander and abusive speech of men in, in spreading strife among brothers. We see lying several times here. The Lord hates a lying tongue and He hates a false witness. In fact, the Proverbs here are full. In fact, the Proverbs in general, as I looked, are full of exhortations to keep away from these sins. In fact, many, many times, the exhortation is to stay away from these sins because at the end of these sins is only destruction. In fact, I want to go through some. There are many verses and I just kind of pale it down. I mean, Proverbs speaks a lot about anger and it speaks a lot about wrath and it speaks a lot about abusive speech and lying. So I just want to show you places where it talks about these things and often it says that the end of these things is destruction. <clears throat> these aren't good things. These are bad things. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25 say, Do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. In other words, stay far away from anger. Stay far away from angry people because you might learn their ways. And you might be angry yourself and bring a snare upon yourself. Right? The ending of destruction. Wrath, <clears throat> like a city that's broken into and without walls, is a man who has no control over his spirit. Proverbs 26:28, right? He's talking about here, here's a man who, whose emotions are out of control. He can't control his spirit. And, and um, Solomon says that it's like city with walls that can't be defended. City without walls. Without walls in that day means your city can't be defended. And there's going to be certain ruin to come and take place. Malice. Proverbs 3, 29-33 says this, Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done no harm to you. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways for the devious are an abomination to the Lord. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. Right? Should you have evil intent upon others, your sin will find you out. That's what this is saying. Slander. Proverbs 16, 27, 28. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. He who spreads slander is a fool. And we know what uh, the end of a fool is in Proverbs. Abusive speech. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth who with perversing his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he'll be broken and there'll be no healing, right? In other words, if hurtful words come from your mouth, calamity will come upon you. That's what it says lying. Proverbs 19, verse 5. Proverbs 19, verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. Four verses later, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will perish. You just can't be about telling falsehood and prosper. You will perish. In fact, the Bible, now that we've looked at Proverbs speak about this, the Bible is full of illustrations also of these particular sins in which those who have had these attitudes and these actions in themselves have, have done these things and then have met their ruin. Right? Think about anger and wrath. Right? I'll clump them together because they're difficult to uh, distinguish. There are many angry people in the Bible. Think about Cain. He was angry with his brother Abel. and Because uh, Abel offered up a, a sacrifice to God that he accepted and Cain didn't. 
And he was angry at him. And God warned him. He says, your countenance has fallen. And then what happened? In his wrath, he killed his brother. What did it get him? Vengeance from God. God told him, you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Genesis 4.12 Think about Saul. Saul was an angry man. He was angry with David, the anointed one of God. He was jealous and angry, right? When the, the ladies came back and sang, Saul is slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands, right? Angry and envious of David and sought to kill him on several occasions. Wrath was stirred so much that he took a spear and attempted to pin him to the wall. That didn't work. God thwarted him. He attempted to kill David as he slept. One night he was there and then he ambushed his house and fortunately for David, he had escaped earlier. Kind of made you know, the, the, the bed look like he was there and all, but he escaped earlier. On several occasions, Paul pursued David in the wilderness with his army to kill him. And David had a chance to kill him, but spared his life. He said, David said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And a gentle answer should have turned away wrath, but the wrath kept coming and kept coming. When Jonathan sided with David, Saul's anger burned. And so what did it get Saul? He died in battle, a disgraced leader. The Philistines cut off his head, stripped off his weapons, sent them throughout all the land of the Philistines. They also took his body and placed it up on the wall of Bethshan for all who come by to see the disgrace that came upon great, powerful King Saul. What about malice? Think about biblical examples of malice. Right? I was thinking of someone thinking about uh, Haman. Haman had malice towards the Jews. He, he attempted to have all of them killed, manipulate the king into to signing a decree that all the Jewish people scattered throughout all the provinces of the kingdom be, be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. In fact, here is the edict. On that day, the king writes that all who are in Persia should kill and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, and seize their possessions as plunder. It's like official Jewish hate day. That was Haman. And what did it get Haman? It's a great story of uh, Esther, right? How things returned. Haman was forced to, to give great honor to Mordecai, the Jewish man who Haman hated with a passion, right? He had to clothe Mordecai with a royal robe and, and place a royal crown upon his head and set him on the, the royal horse and parade him through the, the city square proclaiming, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king desires to honor. Humbled. And eventually, you guys know what happened to Haman, right? Eventually, Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had constructed to use in the hanging of Mordecai. Malice. Think about slander. I thought about when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came to fight against Hezekiah. He sent Rabshakeh, his messenger, to slander Hezekiah and to slander God before all the people. The people of, uh, of Judah said when Rabshakeh came, he says, well, don't, don't speak in the Judean language, right? Just talk to us. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell everybody. That's what he's going to do. And I'm going to tell it into Judean language. And he said, thus says the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you from my hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah. 
when he misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his hand, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Right? In other words, Hezekiah is foolish. Don't trust him. He's an incompetent leader. Don't trust the Lord. He can't deliver you. None of the other gods stood up. Right? Blasphemous against the slanderous against Hezekiah. Slanderous against the Lord. And what took place? You remember? 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one night by the angel of the Lord. An army the size of Rockford coming up against Jerusalem. They're out there in the camp kind of making their strategic plans and all of a sudden... 185,000 of them dead. Sennacherib returned with his army what was left of it as a defeated king. Think about abusive speech. I think about Absalom, David's son. He would rise early every day and stand beside the way to the gate when men had any suit to come against the king for judgment. Absalom would say, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. And... Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me to judge over land. Then every man who has a suit or cause could come to me and I would give them justice. Right? Subtle form of, of slander against the king. Subtle form of abusive speech. I mean, that's what they're, they're motivated to tear David down. Motivated to abuse him and motivated with malicious intent against him. Right? David's not running the kingdom well. He's refusing to grant justice to everyone. He's incompetent in his reign. Look at all the injustice going on. But if I was there, it would all be solved. And what did it get him? Well, eventually it got him the kingdom in the conspiracy. But ultimately, his reign was short-lived as those faithful to David eventually able to take back the kingdom, leaving Absalom hanging in a tree by his hair. The Lord will find you out. Think about lying. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. He had a great opportunity to be involved in the early church. Boy, if any time that I would ever want to live in a place I live, I would have longed to live in Jerusalem during the days of Pentecost. The preaching of Peter and 3,000 are saved and soon 5,000 in the church and the Word of the Lord kept spreading and even the, the priests of the Old Covenant were becoming obedient to the faith and the, the church was spreading and growing and you know, people, it's astonishing, we read next chapter 4 about how they taken the proceeds, selling the things, saying, oh, somebody has need, I sell that. <clears throat> and I give it to somebody else and people were just giving of themselves, divesting of themselves. The incredible love that was taking place <clears throat> in the early church is incredible. Ananias and Sapphira caught up in the Spirit. They sold a piece of property. They kept back a price for themselves. Now, that was okay. You didn't have to give everything to the apostles, but they said they gave everything and didn't give it all. They lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened? Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because of their lies. And in fact, even it just says that the Spirit left them. It's like they breathed their last. Their last breath out of their mouth was a lie. And God wouldn't take it. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. Listen, they're all sins expressly forbidden in, in Scripture. They're, we've seen great warning of these things. And we've seen the end that they bring. Before we move on to our next point, I thought I'd like to take some time now even to 
cause us to give some time to allow the Spirit of God to search our hearts and our minds. I know in preaching a sermon like this, your tendency and my tendency is to think about other people. (laughs) I think they're a liar. I think they're a deceiver. I think uh, they're angry. They're at, but, but not me, right? Perhaps my message this morning, you were thinking of other, another person. I, I know it's easy to do, right? But, but beware this morning. It might just be a, a speck in your brother's eye and a log in your own. It may be you've listened to these sins that I've thought and you've thought, you know, I'm free of them. I, well, maybe just a little speck. But they got a log and they need to hear this message. I mean, after all, I don't have loud outbursts of anger. I'm not making plans to harm anybody. My, my speech is totally above reproach. And I see how easy it is to justify ourselves in these regards. It may be, though, that things in your life might be, maybe they're not large, but they might be in your life. In recent days, I have done some deep soul searching over these matters. I've been examining my heart and my motives intensely the past several weeks. I've been examining the words that I speak, the words I've spoken, and I say such searching has been good for my soul. And I would say perhaps the Lord right now might be convicting your heart in these areas as well. And so what I'd like to do is just even take this time in a message and just why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, and deal with the Lord. I encourage you to think about these sins like anger and wrath and malice and slander, abuse of speech and lying. And ask the Lord, perhaps there are areas in your life in which these things have been true of you. Angry at other people with circumstances. Intending evil from your heart against them. Speaking wrongly of them. Slandering them. Defaming their character. Speaking abusively about other people. Lying. Deceiving. I just say, if those sins are in your life, just confess them to the Lord. I know I've done some confession in this area. Examine my heart. And say, plead for God for the strength to put them off. You're not going to put them off on your own strength. You're only going to put them off by the strength which God supplies. This isn't a message this morning of Suck it up and do it. It's a message of, boy, look upon everything we have in Christ and trust and rely upon Him. If you search your heart and say, boy, I'm blameless in this. Well, just take Paul's warning to, to task. He says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And be assured in your confessions, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. And O oh God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, His Son, and the Holy Spirit, He sent, I pray even now, so Your Spirit would come upon us and expose our sins and frailties and weaknesses. And, and may we ever trust in the cross of Christ. May we know of the joy of your salvation that has freed us from these things. And may we be those who boast in the cross. God, we see these sins and we hate them. And we see the results and want to stay away from them. So I pray you'd strengthen us in days going forward. Amen.
Well, let's continue on. Sins, six sins to put off. My second point, a reason to put them off. So it's like last week. Last week, he said, consider your members of your earthly body as dead to these things. Right? Because this is the case. And that's what he says here. Verse 8, right? Put them all aside. Since, verse 9, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This statement here really backs up the reasons why we need to put these things aside. Right? It's not to gain righteousness. It's not to gain merit before God. It's not a, a condition necessary before God loves us. It's not true. Rather, the reason we put these sins off is really because of who we are. Through faith in Christ, we have been given a righteousness. We've been given a hope. In Christ Jesus, Colossians 2 verse 10 says that we've been made complete in Him. And it's precisely because we have been changed, it's because God has transformed us, because God has granted us forgiveness that we ought to live these ways. Right? In fact, that's what Paul says. He says, put them all aside since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. ESV says it the same way. It says, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, right? The, the idea is that in Christ Jesus, right, <clears throat> you've put aside your old stained garments and you've put on the new clean garments, right? You've, you've taken these off in Christ. You've taken them off. And, and, and you've put these on. And there are behaviors that you just thought not to do because you have these things on. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> Maybe an illustration might, might help. I have here another pair of, of khaki pants. These are my, my children's dress pants. And, uh, you know, these are the pants they wear when they go to church and they go to a family gathering or they, um, um, you know, go to anything else they need to... to set up, but, you know, if, if they do this to their pants, what, what do they got? They, they got? they got mud stains here, they got grass stains, they got holes in their pants. What happened? They forgot what they're wearing. They're wearing Christ. <clears throat> and they, sto- they soiled their garments. That's what they've done. Actually, I soiled them. I was in the mud and scraping that on, but I thought it'd be a, a good illustration. These are old pants, but you can pretend. Just CNSR out there playing baseball in his nice pants, right? So all of you who want to play football after church, you just need to be careful a little bit, right? Well, think about what Paul told those in, of us in, in Colossians, those in Colossae, what Christ has done for us. Because really, that's the key. That's the key to the thing. Let's, let's think about what Christ has done for you, how He's cleansed you and made you clean. And um, you know what? Those, those former ways, you ought not to walk in those ways. See, it's through faith in God that chapter 1, verse 13, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Right? It's no longer proper for us to participate in the deeds of darkness because we've been taken out of darkness and placed into light. In Christ, Colossians 1, verse 22, we've been reconciled in His fleshly body through His death. Right? We've been redeemed and reconciled. And to be reconciled, God dealt with the sin problem in the cross of Christ and forgave us. Colossians 2, verse 12, we were raised up with Him through faith in the working of God. 
And I've tried in vain, in some sense, I think, to describe this because it's so mysterious, so difficult. But it says that we have participated with Christ in His resurrection and we sit with Christ in the heavenlies, raised up pure, clean, and holy. In Christ, chapter 2, verse 13, we've been made alive together with Him. Colossians 2, verse 13. This is my favorite phrase almost in all of Colossians. All our transgressions have been forgiven, right? They've been wiped clean. Colossians 3, verse 1. We've been raised up with Christ, as I quoted before, Colossians 2.10. In Him we've been made complete. And Paul's argument here is that since you've laid them aside and since you've been changed, our life ought to reflect these realities. We have died with Christ. should make every effort to kill our sin. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I mean, that's what we want to do, right? We want to be walking in Him, as Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says. It's our desire. We've been cleansed. We want to do that. So let me ask you, why is it that we as believers of Christ find it so difficult to do? Why are there times when we still participate in these types of sins that Paul has listed, that we know that we hate? Immorality, impurity, evil... Passion, evil desire, and greed, and, and anger, and wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech, and lying. Why is it that we participate in those things from time to time? Well, let me ask you. Why do children <clears throat> who wear nice clothes still play football after church? Because kids are kids. And they like doing those things. They like to slide in the grass and crawl around looking for, mu- for bugs and doing all that. So I say, why do we struggle with our sin? Well, because we're still kids. Haven't fully grown up yet. Right? We're like a plant that's growing and getting stronger and stronger, right? But we're not fully there yet. We're like a kid. We like these things. That we're so ingrained to them in our former life that we, we, we like those things and we want to have those things. And it's really ultimately is because we're still living in the flesh. And the flesh will always tempt us until we're out of the, the flesh and with Christ with the spiritual body. You know, we can easily fall. We can easily stain our pants we're wearing. But let, let me ask you, what will help a child to stay away from the mud when he's wearing his nice pants? Parents, what do you do? Your child's wearing a nice pants. You see the football game. And what do you say? Remember, you've got your nice pants on. Remember, don't go doing that. Jimmy, remember, don't go playing in the mud. And you know, we also, as believers in Christ, need that reminder as well. You've been redeemed. You've been taken out of darkness. You've been transferred to light. Don't walk in the darkness. Because you're going to betray who you are. You've got your nice clothes on. In fact, that's... That's even what uh, is talked about here at the end of verse 10, right? The new self, our new self, we're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, right? There's a, there's a newness, there's a, there's a working that's going on, right? We're being renewed, we're being changed, we're being helped, we're, being, we're growing in that. But it is kind of like a, a process that's there. It's our, our desire to get there and God is working in us to get there. And boy, if I created the world... I would have created that everyone believe in Christ is perfect already. But there's some reason why God makes us struggle and struggle. I believe it's because He wants us to long for Him and long to trust Him to help us in the path of walking righteously. That's what He's doing. 
Well, let's look at my last point this morning. Just kind of where it all brings together. <laughs> There's great hope here in verse 11. I was talking to my wife about the sermon and she said, Steve, is there hope? I said, yes, there's hope. And here it is. Point number three, no barriers. Or if you want to finish the phrase and keep things parallel, no barriers to putting them off. You know, there's lots of discussion and talk today in the psychological world about a person's background and their their upbringing. Psychologists always want to find out about your past. They always want to find out about your relationship with your father or, or whether you moved around the, the country when you were little or, or whether your kids at school made fun of you or whether or not you were abused as a child or whether you received good grades or bad grades. And, and the idea between, behind psychologists is this, right? If they can find out what your upbringing was like and the deficiencies in your upbringing, then they can find out why you struggle with these things as an adult. Right? If your father was unloving, well, you can't understand God's love then correctly. Or if you moved around the country a lot, then, then you're insecure and unstable because you've never found a place to plant your roots. Or if the kids at school always made fun of you, then you always just think poorly of yourself. If you're abused, then you're going to have problems with forgiveness, thinking things are your fault. And if you receive poor grades, you, you'll think that you'll never be good enough to earn God's favor. And, and on and on they go. And the tendency, the subtle tendency is this, is to look for excuses for sin. That's what's taking place in subtleties. Because these things are barriers of our past that, that has been created to make it difficult for us to live a righteous life. But you know what? Paul doesn't do this. Paul gives no barriers. I almost named this no excuses, but I think no barriers is better because there's hope. Because it says there's nothing that's hindering you from walking in the righteous way. In fact, that's what Paul is saying. It's a renewal. right? You're being renewed in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And he's just saying this renewal in you works among all groups of people, among all social classes, among all religious classes, among all racial classes, among all social classes. And this renewal is taking place regardless of wherever you came from. In Christ, He has removed the racial barrier. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white. It doesn't matter whether you're Arab or Asian. God's renewal knows no distinction. And the power that you have to conquer sin is irrespective of your ethnic origin. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Talking about the religious barrier. The circumcised refer to the Jewish people. Did everything right in their religious upbringing, right? Circumcised the eighth day of this tribe, right? The chosen people. And they followed the law and they kept it, right? But Paul says even here that uh, whether you were circumcised in the right way or the uncircumcised, these were the pagans who pursued their own idols. Paul says this renewal is whether you're religious or whether you were irreligious, pagan background. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a Christian church or whether you grew up worshiping a cow. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in the Bible Belt or from a sinful city. God's renewal knows no distinction. It works equally as much under under both circumstances. Whatever kind of religious background you had, whether you were raised in a conservative, moral, religious atmosphere, or whether you were raised in a totally pagan, let go, let whatever you want. There's no distinction renewal. There's no barrier here. Barbarian or Scythian, right, refers to a cultural barrier. The barbarians were those who were uncultured, didn't speak the Greek language, and thus considered to be a lower class of people. Scythians, uncivilized, cruel people. It's astonishing who these Scythians are. 
They delighted in murder and torture of every kind. They used articles made of human bones for common household utensils. Right? In other words, they'd take um, the, the people they'd conquer, they'd kill them, take their scalp, and they'd use their scalps as napkins. They'd conquer people and they'd take their skulls and use them as drinking vessels. These are barbaric, cruel, violent people. And Paul says, this renewal has sees no distinction in that. <clears throat> There's no barrier. It doesn't matter whether you grew up as a barbarian, right? Some Spanish-speaking immigrant worker who, who can't speak the language and maybe is considered second class. He, he can't even talk with that person. It doesn't matter. You can overcome sin. It doesn't matter whether you're an inner-city gang member, violent, aggressive, and cruel upon everybody in the world. So this renewal of God knows no distinction. The power you have to conquer your sin is irrespective of the culture in which you're raised. Slave or free man refers to the social barrier. Obviously, a slave is one who considered a piece of property with absolutely no rights. The, the free man was the upper class of society who employed the slave. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in the slums of Chicago and attended school only through the eighth grade before you had to start working to support your family and to help your mother. Or it doesn't matter whether your father was a multimillionaire, you're sent to prep school, got the best training in the land, went to Harvard. Says God's renewal knows no distinction. The power that you have to conquer sin is irrespective of your social class in which you're raised. And I hope this is freeing. I hope this is hope. It says that there is renewal here and there is, there is help. Now, I, I am, certainly I'm sensitive to how one's upbringing, right, will, will cause one's sanctification to maybe have to go more, you know, because of the, the moral filth that's been in people's homes. But there's no excuse. There's no barriers. It says the, the, the renewal here that's coming from God knows no distinction. It comes upon all of us and can bring all of us into, as verse 10 says, a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Well, this last phrase here, verse 11, and this is great hope, but Christ is all and in all. This is what Paul's getting at, right? Don't look to your background make excuses for lingering sins. Realize that Christ is all. Christ is all you need. He is sufficient. He is everything. He has all power. He's the one that can bring about your healing and your help. He's the one that can help you conquer your sin. And so in temptation, sin comes upon you. Don't look to your past. Don't look at your social status or your religious upbringing, right? Look only to Christ because you're all in all. He's broken down every barrier that prevents you from being fully renewed in Him. It's interesting, the things that Paul's calling us to here in chapter 3, verse 5 and following, these are all just non-cultural norms that we just need to be at. Right? We need to remove ourselves of these sins. And how different this was than Colossians chapter 2. When in Colossians chapter 2, there was this, this attempt to obtain righteousness through, through funneling everybody into this Jewish mold or into this Gnostic mold or into this mystic mold or into any other kind of mold. But Paul is saying, no, no let, let's mold ourselves into what God is like. Right? The image of God. This is what God is like. He has no immorality, no impurity, no evil desire, passion, or greed. He has no right, unrighteous anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. We need to be and conform ourselves to be like God. So let me just give you some final advice. It's really simple. Do you want to know how you keep away from your sins? Counsel is really simple. Two things. First of all, 
Look to Christ, who made an end to your sin, believing that He will give you the power to overcome these sins. Right? Look to Christ. He's our all. Where else will we look? We don't look to the commandments made by men. Right? Don't look to visions you've seen and experiences. Look to Christ, who is our all. And second, <clears throat> work really hard at putting off your sin. Work hard at it. That's the thrust of killing it and, and putting it off and putting aside. It requires there a, a, an effort and a, a diligence and a zeal. So those two things. Look to Christ and work really hard. Let's pray. Well, I, I pray for us at church that you would take these words. I prayed in the beginning and embed them deep into our hearts, deep into our minds, that we would be uh, people who would walk this way. That we would be people who would live righteously, not, not by our own strength, but by the strength that you supply. We need your help. Amen.